Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. It's March 31st, 2020. I watched uh, Bob Ruff's two-part special on oxygen this weekend, and I had more than a few thoughts about it, but uh, I don't know if we, I... I'm going to get into all of it today or even get into most of it. Uh, basically what Ruff is doing is perpetuating a, a kind of fraud on his listening audience. Uh, it's absolutely unconscionable what he's doing to Terry Hobbs, throwing this veil of suspicion over him. If you actually look at the statements of David Jacoby, who is uh, Hobbs's chief alibi witness, though he, other people did see him searching that evening, leaving him relatively, even those sightings leave him not very much time to have committed the crimes. Uh, Jacoby's statements basically leave him with no time to commit the crimes, unless you think it can be done in 10 or 15 minutes, uh, which is ridiculous. Uh, what Ruff did was shoehorn a couple of times in uh, he basically made it sound as if, without checking the old statements, he didn't go back and say what Jacoby said in uh, 2007, I believe it was, about this. He just simply uh, interpreted the times as to fit his agenda as Jacoby was spilling it out. Jacoby's not really precise on the times. What is clear, and it's also clear from Terry Hobbs' statements, is that they were busy searching for Stevie Branch for most of that evening. And that would have left anybody who was doing that no time to, assuming they were even that cold-blooded and cool-headed about it, just simply go out. If they like working like a robot, they couldn't have done it. Logistics just, just simply don't work. And then you throw in the, if this was an... Uh, a case of over-disciplining and somebody getting out of control, which is just pure conjecture on the part of Jim Clemente. He, it's not based on any science. It's based on what kind of stuff he came up with. Now, I'll say this about Clemente. His, uh, on his, his show, Real Crime Profiles, had the West Memphis Three on there several years ago. And I haven't listened to it since it came out because I just simply don't spend my time listening to podcasts about the West Memphis Three that are just totally off base, but I, I could go back and I could just simply point out to you that Clemente didn't, didn't seem to have a grasp of what the crime was at the time, and then he gets on rough show and he acts as if he's never heard of it. And then he comes up with this profile that seems to be tailor-made for... Uh, Terry Hobbs, though in truth it was so general in many respects, it was, it was you know, <laughs> like half, not half the population of West Memphis, but a wide swath of the population of West Memphis would fit that profile, except for the being close to the child. Uh, he wasn't, Terry Hobbs was not close to these other two boys. He had no motive for killing them. Uh, he had no motive for killing Stevie didn't solve any pro his that child's death did not solve any problems for him uh, if you look at his reactions 
on film with an unprejudiced eye, you will see somebody who's authentically shaken by the experience. Uh, yeah, he smokes, he kneels down and smokes a cigarette. That's what people do in a stage of grief. They reach out, for, reach out in a stage of shock and try to deal with it as best they can. His wife's flailing around on the ground screaming. He's, he's there for her. It's, it's, it was a horror scene. It was a horror scene for John Mark Byers. I would argue that none of the parents have ever truly recovered from this experience because it's not something you recover from. You just simply deal with the wound as it continues to eat away at you. And some of it are dealing with it better than others. Some are affected more than others. Obviously Pam Hicks, if you see the interview and you hear what Ruff said, she was, you know, in his follow up, his show the other day, he said that she, you know, she was incoherent. He really had a hard time getting a statement out of her. So, you know, you spend three or four hours with somebody and then you get like five minutes of usable tape uh, and, and then you put on a show and act like you're crying over all this, which is, you know, he's, he, he, he the way Ruff goes about this is really just extremely annoying. Uh, it's cheesy. I can't imagine uh, the oxygen producers seem to have to rein him back in any number of times on camera. No telling what was going on behind the scenes. I'll be very surprised if we ever see him on the oxygen network again because he came off as a clown. I'm rambling a little bit, but the fact is uh, all this new investigation is possible because Ruff simply discounts all the elements of the old investigation. He totally uh, misinterprets and, and really lies about how the in, how the arrest came about, how the convictions came about. Uh, the start of all this was, uh, as far as Damien Eccles' involvement, Damien Eccles was not on the radar of the West Memphis Police Department. He was on the radar of his juvenile probation officer, Jerry Driver, for very good reasons. Uh, the year before, uh, Eccles had uh, been involved in uh, he attacked a boy at his school Sean Divilbiss attempted to take his eyes out with claws he had grown out, grown out into vampire claws inch and a half sharpened claws he was trying to take his eyes out with that fortunately he wasn't able to do that uh, but that got him into some trouble. He got into other fights. Uh, he attempted to run away with his girlfriend, uh, Deanna Holcomb. And because of his emotional reactions afterwards, I mean, he threatened to kill the parents. He threatened to kill various other, he threatened to kill quite a few people. Threatened to kill uh, Divil Bisque, threatened to kill Divil Bisque's cousin, threatened to kill Deanna's parents. Uh, he even brags about how he was, was eyeing the, the, the revolver in the office the officer had in the car and he was going to grab it and he fantasizes he's going to grab and shoot uh, 
Mr. Holcomb as Mr. Holcomb comes up when uh, his daughter's uh, apprehended at this trailer in Lakeshore Trailer Park with Eccles in May of 1992. And I will point out that there's a significance to the timing of the crime. Eccles' psychological disaster truly began. He was a, he was, he was a time bomb, and the bomb went off in May, not in May of 1993, but May of 1992, with this breakup of this girlfriend, which is, you know, traumatic. It's traumatic at any age, generally speaking. I've had a few, more than a few, actually, and, uh, but, uh, it's traumatic at any age, and particularly when you're young, feelings run very high. And when you throw in a lack of emotional stability, somebody who's on the borderline of being sane to begin with, well, he fell right over the edge. He uh, threatened to kill himself and ended up in uh, Charter in, in Little Rock. As a result of this, he gets involved with Jerry Driver. Jerry Driver uh, had already seen, there was already some concern in the area because uh, there seemed to be some occult activity going on. Uh, it wasn't just made up. There were, you know, maybe it was just kids with chalk writing on uh, uh, various landmarks. But, you know, it had the impression. And what Eccles did was Eccles... You know, he was involved in black magic, according to Deanna Holcomb. Whatever that, particularly that means, it's not a good thing. It's, its intent is not good, whatever its results are. And she says she was also involved in that. And uh, Eccles fed uh, drivers concerns about these cults. Now, we know there's a, at least a Wicca group. There's several Wicca groups, but we know the names of at least one Wicca group, then people associated with at least one Wicca group uh, that was in the area at the time. Uh, Murray, Murray J. Ferris, uh, Chris Luttrell. We know that they were in a Wicca group that Eccles was sort of loosely affiliated with, but they really didn't want to have anything to do with Eccles because he's too creepy. He was too icky, as his nickname implied. So, anyway, Driver was very much aware of Eccles as, as this problematic kid. And then Eccles goes to, uh, he, he gets out of Charter so he can, he, so he can get, because he can go stay with his parent. His parents are getting back together. This is another trauma. His mother was breaking up at the time with her stepfather at well over alleged sexual abuse of, uh, not of Eccles, but of Eccles' sister. And uh, so Eccles, the Eccles family uh, reunited. Uh, Joe Hutchison and, and uh, Pam, Pam got back together and they decided they were gonna go to Oregon and uh, Damien went along with them. This was a disaster for the family he gets there with he's working at a gas station within a few weeks he's uh, drunk he's having a episode he's threatened to kill people threatened to cut his mother's throat threatened to eat his father with a spoon uh, he t gets taken to st vincent's in portland 
and uh, the parents say they're scared of him. They don't want him around the small children at home. He needs to go back. So he goes back to Arkansas. And he wasn't authorized to do this. So his probation officer learns he's back in Arkansas and says, you know, you're really not supposed to be here. I'm putting you in a, I'm putting you in a juvenile facility until we figure out what to do with you. And what, what does he do? He gets in the juvenile facility and no telling what else he was doing, but we do know he, uh, he uh, drank some blood from another kid there. Uh, this is disturbing behavior, and they already had enough reasons to be disturbed about his behavior, so they sent him to charter again. He spent some time there. He was released, uh, and there's extensive files on this called Exhibit 500. Uh, you can go through there, and there's just page after page, mental health professionals, most of whom are, find Eccles' behavior very disturbing. He seems to be obsessed with vampires, with drinking blood, with horror, with killing people. He fantasizes he's got some sort of spirit living inside him. He's got a witch that followed him from Oregon. Uh, he's got an imaginary friend named Rosie. Uh, I could go on down the list of you know the things he's talking about. He he believes he communes with uh, the demonic realm. He's a he describes himself as a demo, demonologist among other things. This is all not normal behavior for anybody, and it's very unusual behavior for a kid from a trailer park in Arkansas, to put it mildly. And he gets out, and he continues to feed Jerry Driver with these stories. Uh, in the spring of 1992, his parents come back to town. They get remarried. Uh, spring of 1992, we have at least one report. We have a couple of reported incidents of Eccles stalking girls. Uh, in one instance, uh, he's crouching behind a bush with uh, a motion going on inside his pants as he's looking at these little girls playing in the yard. Now, I don't know what his hand was doing inside his pants behind that bush, but I do know that Jesse Miskelly Jr. describes Eccles masturbating over the dying body of one of the boys that he was in the process of killing on May 5th, 1993. And uh, so it would not be out of character for him to have be doing something similar to that at the time, but we don't know for sure. Anyway, so what happens on May, 5th, May 6, 1993, searchers find the bodies of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. They're nude, they're bound. Binding is a, it has some occult semblance, uh, particularly that kind of strange binding. Clementi describes it. I know I'm going to wander off on a tangent here, but Clementi describes it as uh, some, some sort of con means of conveyance after they were dead, uh, so they would be easier to carry around. Well, nobody was carrying anybody. They were at, they were where they were killed, based on the blood evidence, where they were killed was right next to where they were placed in the water. There was no carrying involved. Also, 
uh, Ruff believes that the boys were simply drowned. Now, two of them are not simply drowned, but they were drowned. And that that's the primary means of, of uh, violence here, was the drowning. Uh, he uh, agrees that the uh, punctures, the rough attacks to the head with something that looked like the sh a shaft of a, a stick or a possibly a ceremonial walking stick, which is probably a straight. I don't think Eccles actually had that out there today based on everything that's said, but it's not really clear. But the point being is that is the use of a stick to put three holes in the head is was uh, the top of the head was part of the accepted practice of ritual sacrifice in pagan times that Eccles was very aware of. Now these doofuses, Clemente, Ruff, they don't seem to know anything about that. They don't seem to care. They dismiss it. They don't, I'm sure they don't take seriously most of Eccles' worldview, but it's an occult worldview, and if you don't understand that, you don't understand Eccles. He believed in that then, he believes in it now. And part of that occult worldview had a place for it for ritual sacrifice. That would include bindings, which is even reflected like in Masonic uh, ceremonies even now. And other occult, occult groups use forms of fairly non-invasive, non-binding bindings, but it's, 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 it's symbolic. So you had bindings, you had nudity, which has occult significance. You had uh, the three blows to the head, which has occult significance. It's three, 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 all through this. Uh, the holiday of Beltane, full moon, uh, setting in the woods, which is neither, it's uh, uh, really a liminal uh, setting. It's neither city nor country. It's at a crossroads. There's lots of, lots of, if you want to put an occult overlay on this, it's not hard to do, but you have to know something about it, and you can't be just an adult like Bob Ruff and just say, I don't believe in you. I don't, you know, he doesn't know anything. He's a dummy. He's pretty, he's well, pretty well spoken, and he's good at making simple declarative sentences that sound authoritative. I will give him credit for that. But, you know, there's no subtlety there. There's no nuance. There's not a whole lot of thought going on in that, and behind those beady little eyes. Um, anyway, what happened was they pull, they pull the bodies up. And Steve Jones was aware of, who worked with Jerry Driver and was at the scene and was actually the one who saw the... Um, the shoe floating in the water, I believe. That's correct. Mike Allen went down to get it, fell in, the body came up. Uh, Michael Moore came up. Uh, he very well may have mentioned something like, it's like Davy Nichols actually did it this time. So that's I, quite a bit of possibility. Did the West Memphis Police Department take that, that comment and run with it? No. They were out looking at truck drivers, sex offenders, and look at the records. They were out looking at truck drivers, sex offenders, a teacher at the high school, 
all sorts of all sorts of people. They did a neighborhood canvas. Ruff uses a neighborhood canvas canvas for uh, part of his so-called investigation. But you know, then he complains that they didn't do a neighborhood canvas. They could have done a better neighborhood canvas. I'm sure that's true. They could have done a better. They should have interviewed the parents extensively and got that all on, on transcribed on tape, on videotape, uh, all that. That would have been great and it would resolve a lot of problems that are going on today, but at the time they didn't do it. <coughs> it was a failing and I think some of it was simply because the shock of the, the crimes was so great that they just really... I think someone understandably just didn't want to have to talk to the parents who were that so broken up about this. I think it's understandable. I mean, I don't know, I'm guessing, but I think that was is kind of out of consideration for them. But uh, they should have talked to the parents and, and gotten all that down on tape. That would have, that would have been appropriate. I'm not, I'm not saying the police investigation was perfect. And, you know, and they did go talk to Damien Eccles. Somebody dropped by his house and a very, a uh, couple of officers dropped by his house in a very informal sort of uh, interview on uh, that Friday, which is the bodies were found on Thursday. They stayed a little while. They took some photos and left. Uh, they were talking to other people, but they did do that. So he was on their radar. Then he got to be more on their radar when they talked to him on they dropped by on Lakeshore, Jason's house, on Sunday afternoon, talked to him, and uh, Jason gives, they have this FBI checklist of questions, and Jason gives very straightforward, simple, till his mother, his mother shows up finally and says, stop talking to the police, and that's pretty much when Jason's input into the case, as far as the, pro, uh, as far as dealing with the police was concerned, that's when it ended, and all his talk about he was giving him this and he was telling him that. And, uh, well, it's certainly not on the record. And it's certainly not in accord with what your mother said. So, and, and uh, your mother's admonition, don't talk to the police. They don't have any records of Jason talking to the police after his arrest. I'm sure he must have said something like, I didn't do it, but you know, whatever. He certainly didn't give a formal statement. He didn't offer an alibi. Uh, Eccles, on the other hand, gives this checklist. He gives these very suspicious-sounding answers. Uh, you know, he would have liked to hear the children screaming as they died. That the that the uh, that would have made them happy to have died. One was cut up more than the other. These were things that triggered suspicions in the police minds that this guy. This is a teenager, 18-year-old teenager who lives in a trailer park, high school dropout. Yet he's got these kind of insights into how a killer thinks and feels. Why wouldn't he become somebody of interest at that point? They didn't arrest him. Then they bring him in the next day, May 9th. And just about the same time that they're talking to him, they're talking to Arlene Hollingsworth. Now, Arlene Hollingsworth and her family had been driving down the service road uh, the evening of the killings. 
And about the time they got into the vicinity of uh, Robin Hood Hills, that general area along the service road, between Ingram and 7th Street. It's not that, it's not that long a stretch of road. But anyway, that's where they were. Uh, they see, they knew Damien Eccles, and they see Damien Eccles, and they, what they describe as Dominique Tier on the side of the road. It's about 9.30 at night, and their clothes are muddy. Marlene says she thought about picking them up, but they decided against it because they didn't have room in the car. Her son Anthony also describes seeing them, and her, her uh, daughter, I believe her daughter's name Sarah, she didn't testify, but her daughter also uh, said she saw them. Her husband Ricky said he couldn't identify them, but he saw these figures by the side of the road. So you've got three people who see Eccles walking away from the scene of the crime. And you got, you know, they didn't talk to the other, uh, the Hollingsworth uh, children. Anthony's not, wasn't even really a child even then, but the Hollingsworth children, uh, they talked to them later, but they already had this story from Narlene Hollingsworth, which, again, you, you, they can't ignore the story of someone coming forward and describing uh, a, a, a scene. Uh, that might involve the commission of the crime. You just don't get to do that. You don't get to write it off and say, well, we don't really, it's, it's Narlene, we don't, and eh, we don't know about Narlene. I mean, she, there's no reason, particular reason to say she's uh, not credible. Uh, I talked to her personally years later, unfortunately, because I had notes in a computer that was simply became inaccessible to me. Uh, that I would have liked to have used, but she told me essentially the same story in 2013. Uh, and then Eccles comes in, and he, you know, his alibi keeps changing. His time, time where he was, what he was doing, where he was, and then he uh, takes a polygraph, he fails the polygraph, and he clams up and he demands to see his mother, and that's the end of Eccles' involvement. So you got, by that point, he'd become a very good suspect. And it wasn't on the basis of his black t-shirt or the fact that he listened to Metallica. And Jason was, wasn't particularly on the radar at all, except as a, an associate of uh, Damien Eccles. Uh, so that is where he became a suspect. And then there's a long, basically they bring um, a month later, you know, they get some more evidence. That everything they get makes Eccles look more guilty. He's even got a guy who's saying he more or less confessed. Uh, William Jones describes what amounts to the confession. Uh, he didn't testify at trial, but at the time of the arrest, they had William Jones, a William Jones confession that presumably could have been used at trial, which may have prompted Gary Gitchell to go, well, it's an 11. He's got, the, not only he's got this other, this confession from Jesse Muskelly Jr., he's also got this other confession from uh, William Jones on, on, on the tape. So, and William Jones is not confessing to the crime, he's describing a confession. And admittedly, that's, you know, heard secondhand, but he can describe what he was told. 
you can't say that you and use your own judge. <laughs> jury has to use their own judgment about how credible he is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's, but it's it's good. It would have been great evidence if the, the all three of the people that they could have brought forward, Buddy Lucas, William Jones, and Ken Watkins, had all testified to various trials. That would have been uh, really, really damning evidence. But uh, Ron Lack scared those kids off, basically. And the, they were already skittish. They didn't want to be talking to the police. Um, and what happened was Jesse Miskelly's brought in. They had plenty of other people they could have, if they were looking just for a scapegoat, they had plenty of other people they could have scapegoated very easily. There's several, Robert Burge kept being mentioned as a, as a potential suspect, and the truth is, is he didn't have a particularly good alibi, but they didn't have any evidence against him. But if they just wanted to drum up evidence against him, they could have just, no, oh, let's get Robert Birch or one of these other guys. One of these other little thugs running around West Memphis. And they, there were plenty of them, in case you haven't figured that out. But anyway, they bring Jesse Miskelly in, and Jesse Miskelly, uh, he, he's in there, and despite what Ruff is saying, uh, he didn't go in there with the idea that he was going to get a reward uh, having to do with uh, having turned it, uh, put in a tip about Tracy Laxton uh, back on. May 15th, you know, it didn't, that, Miss Skelly had, and a couple of friends had been approached on Missouri Street by a guy who wanted them to, them to come drink with him out in the woods, very much in the area where uh, Bojangles, Mr. Bojangles would have been. It was an area that lent itself to people hanging out in the woods, drinking, otherwise getting themselves in trouble. It's busy, busy thoroughfare, and then you walk, you know, the, the length of a lot, and basically you're out in a, in a, a woods, a scrub, but woods, and uh, so they told police, police come, they talked to Tracy Laxton, Tracy Laxton really doesn't know, doesn't know anything about the crime, he's got some relatives in law enforcement in town, he was in uh, Mississippi at the time, Apparently they verified his presence there. In other words, he wasn't really ever really a suspect. He was just a guy hanging out in the woods drinking. And uh, then they tracked down Miss Kelly and his friends. I think Dennis Carter was also involved. I think at the, they were at the uh, bowling alley, I think, and uh, talked to them there. But, you know, the, there was no reward involved. Miskelly wasn't, there's no evidence Miskelly was trying to get an award or reward. If anything, he seemed to have skirted even being involved in it, except he made this call in for whatever reason. Uh, maybe Dennis Carter egged him on with it. Who, who knows why he did that, but they, they did do that. And honestly, if you commit a crime or you can find somebody else to blame it on, that's not a bad, not a bad methodology. I don't think Miss Kelly's that smart, but you know, if you're gonna do that, if you're gonna do it, then you know, kill somebody. If you can blame somebody else, great. If you want to get away with it. So that's how uh, Miss Kelly comes in. Um, have a very innocuous talk. You know, he's very down on Damien Eccles. He just describes him as sick. He's very consistent about this. He 
he describes Eccles as being this sick guy who drinks blood. Uh, then they give him a lie detector test, very standard procedure that they'd done with dozens of other people. And Miskelly fails a lie detector test. Lo and behold, you got the two of the killers take lie detector test, and both of them failed lie detector test. The third one refuses to take a polygraph, and so we don't know what his results would have been. But you got two failed polygraph tests. But the, the, that in itself would not have been sufficient, even at that point, to charge anybody with anything. They can't charge somebody on the basis of a failed polygraph test. But they come back in, they talk to Miskelly, and the next thing you know, he's feeling guilty. They do a few little triggering things with pictures, you know. The picture that they showed of a, the dead boy was not a particularly gruesome photo. I'm not saying it was a pleasant photo to look at. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Chris, uh, Chris Byers, but, you know, it's just, it was just a picture of his, uh, he's sort of wrapped in a blanket or something or some sort of wrapping and you can see his face and it's, it's pitiful, it's sad, but it's not particularly gruesome. It certainly didn't show any major wounds and as a result of that and his own guilt feelings, which Miskelly had been expressing for several weeks at home, according to Lee Rush, his father's live-in girlfriend, he starts talking, and he talks, you know, the confession comes very quickly. It comes somewhat easily. He's already told this story once. He's not a really smart, he's not a smart guy. His IQ is probably around 72, which means he's not very smart. It uh, doesn't mean he doesn't have, doesn't know right from wrong, according to the psychologist that interviewed him. You know, he, had, he was able to understand uh, moral issues in a very concrete sort of way. Uh, anything complex is probably well beyond him, but, you know, there's nothing particularly complex about uh, three little boys being killed in a ditch. It's obviously wrong and obviously a horrible thing, and Miskelly, to his credit, felt bad about it. And he gets it off his chest, he tells the police. Uh, there are a few leading questions, I suppose, in there. But he also describes uh, who was attacked, how they were attacked, where they were attacked, and the wounds. And this gets to one of Ruff's uh, big things, which is, oh, uh, this is all animal predation. They all die by drowning, and therefore Jesse Miskelly's story is, uh, you know, totally discredited. Well, there's a couple of things there. For one thing, uh, this whole animal predation theory has largely been disproven. Uh, there weren't turtles found, and there are plenty of turtles in Ten Mile Bayou. And yeah, if you throw in a, a small carcass in there, of a, of a, on a warm day, if you throw in a small a, a car carcass of a, chick, a chicken or something, they will eat it. However, during the day, these boys were placed in the water at night. Turtles aren't feeding at night. They were underwater. They were not floating. They were jammed down in, they were more or less, they were more, not just more or less, they were smashed down into the mud, stomped down into the mud, literally. So many of these body parts were not available for feeding to begin with. 
the one boy that Michael Moore describes as not having been involved with, with he has no particular, uh, Miskelly has no, there's no reason why Miskelly would know the details of the crime, but he describes Michael Moore as being uh, unmolested by this, these knives attacks from Jason Baldwin. He describes Stevie Branch as having been cut in the face. He describes Christopher Byers as basically being emasculated, castrated, cut on the bottom, whatever you want, however exact words you want to describe that horrible attack, but that's what happened, and that is what Miss Skelly described. None of that was in the paper that way. It was not common knowledge. It was not floating around everywhere. The blood evidence at the scene shows that, indeed, that is... The, 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 these boys bled quite, two of the boys bled quite a bit at the scene and uh, you know and then they were placed in the water there was no need for some sort of conveyance I'm not I don't know for sure what was going on through Eccles head if he was consciously or unconsciously practicing some sort of occult ritual at the time it's certainly not uh, a satanic ritual from some sort of hammer film with uh, Christopher Lee standing there in a long black coat, cloak uh, holding a ritual knife at an altar with candles all about. No, it's none of that. But there was something going on there besides just simple killing of the boys and the strangest elements, the most unexplainable elements of, of the case uh, particularly the bindings indicate that that was that that was something to do with resolving some sort of psychic tension within somebody regarding uh, torture, binding, power, religion, witchcraft, and these we know that Eccles, according to his own book, went to. Uh, was fascinated by stories of Salem witch, uh, Salem witch trials, torture, involved binding, putting people in the water. <coughs> we know all, we know all that, uh, and that he went to sleep at night thinking about these things. So, he's been preoccupied with all this stuff for years. That is, I mean, that's where his psychic life really is. Is in the, these occult fantasies of one sort or another. So, anyway, Miss Kelly tells the police what happened. They get through, and there's some problems with the story. He describes choking him, um, he just, which they don't appear to have been significantly choked. Later In later confessions, it's described more like he was they were controlling them by the head, uh, there were injuries to the ears that indicated they were controlling them by the head uh, and that they may have been forcing the boys. I mean, those kinds of injuries are uh, consistent with forcing the boys, apparently, to perform oral sex. Uh, who knew? But that's apparently that's that those kind of injuries show that. Uh, Stevie Branch also had injuries to his penis that appeared that somebody had abused him there. Uh, according to Miskelly, that would have been Damien Eccles. Uh, I don't. Sounds reasonable to me. Sounds disgusting, and and I, you know, I'd like to see him in the ground just for that. But 
Sounds, sounds like it probably happened that way. So, that's, uh, you know, the, and then there were the problems with the times, which are so off base with, and, you know, Ruff does not bring anything new to the table. These problems with that confession were evident to the officers that day. They were evident to Judge Pal Rainey when he looked over the confession before he got the search warrant. You've got a problems with the times that need to be cleared up. They went back, they cleared up the problems with the times. Did, did uh, Gary Gitchell talk Jesse Miskelly into changing up the times before that second inter taped interview that day in the interval between the first confession and the second? Well, maybe and maybe not. I mean, they had talked to him earlier that day. So we don't know when the conversation about the times occurred originally. Maybe in the original conversation, I'd have to go back and check the notes, but I, I don't recall anything about the morning in the uh, original notes on the uh, the notes on the um, the officers on the uh, earlier in the day before they did the tape confession. Anything about it being in the morning? So it's quite likely they had an understanding from Miskelly this happened in the evening until he started talking on tape. Anyway, Gitchell comes back. He gets that straightened out. They have, they have some other stuff, and it's a fairly short, simple uh, confession. And <coughs> lo, lo and behold, this expert on false confession picks up on these one or two things. He doesn't, we don't pay attention to the fact of all the things that Miss Kelly got right, the stuff he obviously didn't have to be led into. He was, he was, it, based on the, his statements, it was obvious he was familiar with the, uh, the, the woods. He said he'd been there once, but he was able to describe the woods very well. He described the placement of the bodies very well. He described how the bodies, who, who attacked whom. And how they, and how they were attacked, and you know, um, there's just a lot of stuff there that. And he told these stories, you know. Depending on how you want to count it, Eccles is. I mean, uh, Baldwin's told maybe depending on how you want to count it. I I count about ten confessions total, including his confessions in the summer uh, to his defense attorney. But uh, be that as it may, this crucial confession was not coerced. It was not a false confession. It was the confession of a guilty teenager who wanted to get the crimes off his back. And he also tried, he tried to minimize his own role, and he probably did think, oh, I'll, I'll I'll get Damien and uh, Damien in trouble in particular, but also Jason, and then I'll I'll skate out wide on this, and it didn't happen. It is significant he got a wider sentence than the other two, just simply because he did. Sh I think partially he did show a level of uh, remorse, which the other two just simply failed to do at all. Um, so when. Uh, All this to say is that, and I, this is all old stuff, I've been over it before, 
But when Ruff talks about these boys being railroaded, they weren't railroaded. It was on, it, the main evidence they had initially was the confession. They built up other evidence by, by the time they got to trial. The Hollingsworth sighting was highly significant, and it never went away, and it still hasn't gone away. Now, if you look at this, what Ruff is doing is he is taking, it's really a kind of a, I hesitate to use it, I'm not going to use the word I was going to use because I don't want to open myself up to some sort of legal liability, but basically what he's doing is very deceitful in that he is presenting himself as somebody who's a real investigator who's going to get the real information and the real facts about this and the only and all he has to do is just get the DNA from the uh, from the prosecuting attorney and have it tested and we'll prove who actually did this well for one thing there's no basis for believing that it might happen <coughs> you know they might get some DNA that that uh, indicates, I, I don't know, they might solve the case on that basis. I, I seriously doubt it, but maybe they, maybe that's possible. They solve it and it actually turns out to be some famous serial killer or something. Who knows? Uh, it would be interesting, but I, you know, I doubt that very seriously. But, you know, lots of things are possible. And maybe, maybe in, you know, one in a thousand chance that maybe that's actually what went on there. I don't think so. I have no reason for thinking that at all. But... Um, the thing is, is Ruff actually acts, actually acts as if he has some sort of standing whereby he can just show up someplace at a prosecutor's office and says, hand me over that evidence. I'm going to go get it tested because I've got my own podcast and guess what? I'm on oxygen. Well, that's not how, the, that's not how this works. Uh, the parents, I think, uh, it's not, they don't get into it a bit, but Pam Hobbs Hicks mentions briefly about her own problems with looking at evidence and so forth, and she was barred from viewing all the evidence in a court filing back in 2013. So that was, and she had certainly public sympathy and a certain amount of standing. Mark Byers was also involved in that. It didn't happen. So why Ruff is misleading his audience and believing that this is, you know, he's got the uh, the means for uh, solving the case if he just gets this new DNA evidence. Meanwhile, there is new DNA evidence. There was new DNA evidence that was collected in 2011 in preparation for an evidentiary hearing in December 2011 in which... The courts were going to consider new trials for uh, the three killers. Instead of presenting that new evidence uh, to the prosecuting attorney's office in time for the evidentiary hearing to go forward, the defense team opted instead to beg for a plea deal, which they got. And, you know, Scott Ellington, the prosecuting attorney, really just want, wanted to make the thing go away. He didn't care 
Uh, it was a nuisance to him. He was getting a lot of complaints. So, you know, it was a public relations nightmare for him in a lot of respects. It was a, not a, there was a, it was a lose-lose situation for him. No matter what he did, he was going to be criticized for it. And which way was the easiest way? Just make them go away. And the way to make them go away was to get a plea deal, get them out, <coughs> and they'll be gone, and hopefully they won't kill anybody again or do anything else really, really horrible. So that's what he did. But it wasn't the prosecution's idea. And... My point being with this is that there's DNA evidence that's there that nobody has ever seen. Why aren't we seeing that in this new series? Ruff has a friendly relationship with Jason Baldwin. He's friendly enough with Baldwin. He says, what's going on, buddy, whenever he answers the phone? He's his buddy. He has a friendly relationship with Eccles. He seems to have a... a by extension, he probably has a friendly relationship with Lori Davis, who really calls the shots with those sort of things in the Eccles camp. So, all he has to do is go and get that DNA evidence from those people, and he would have something new. Might not solve the case. <laughs> this is silly to talk about solving the case. The case is solved. But, you know, it might not resolve anything. It might simply show what's been shown before. Oh, we really didn't get any usable DNA evidence that we can link to anybody, which is what the situation has been up to now. So, and it's possible there could be some sort of ambiguous or who knows, but DNA evidence is not as simple as it might sound. From my understanding of it, it, it can be, get to be very complicated. Uh, it can get to be very complicated. It is very complicated, and it can get to be even more complicated. Uh, but um, he could do that. Anyway, well, he, I want to say that, you know, Ruff was talking about he's going to run this investigation. What does he actually do during these two shows? He talks to Pam Hobbs. He really doesn't have any, Pam Hicks, he really doesn't have any, helpful information at all. He talks to Pam's sister at a certain point who runs down Terry Hobbs and it's well known that she just absolutely hates Terry Hobbs. She thinks he killed the boys. But her basis for that belief is very thin indeed. It's basically based on a deep dislike. And, um, and all these stories about Hobbs disciplining is Disciplining his son, it sounds like typical complaints from an ex or an ex's family that's trying to run down the ex-husband. Very generic. Maybe there's a little bit to it. Uh, if you told me that Terry Hobbs spanked Stevie on occasion and maybe spanked him too hard once or twice, I, I wouldn't be surprised and I wouldn't blame him for it. Uh, The similar thing with the domestic disputes, the, you know, the, the real people with the people with the real history of various forms of disputes, <laughs> physical disputes, it's not Terry Hobbs, it's Pam's side of the family, just the fact, and they seem to egg her on, and it's not, it's not a pretty, it's not a good situation, and it's not a pretty sight, and it hasn't been. 
but uh, so it's really the pot calling the kettle black as far as that goes. Um, anyway, they take, once again, we have an innocent victim of the crime who's being touted as the potential suspect. Uh, Bob Ruff, uh, if you, am I going back over this again? But I'll, I'll, I don't mind repeating it. D David Jacoby's statements taken as a whole and not just how uh, they're edited for the sake of the, uh, the broadcast, you take them as a whole, uh, Hobbs has a pretty good, he doesn't have room there to have committed the crimes. It just simply is not possible. Um, what we have, what else do we have? We had uh, this really ridiculous episode with George Taylor, who was supposedly the fourth boy in the woods. Uh, based on some internet postings, we spent all that time on that. It was a total dead end. It was really kind of embarrassing to watch. Uh, Ruff comes off as an idiot, almost as bad as poor George, but uh, it's it was embarrassing, and even the executive producers were trying to rein Ruff back in at that point. Let's, let's get this over with. So that was a big nothing. Another big nothing was sending a special forces guy who's probably in a lot better shape than Mr. Bojangles was, uh, running up uh, Tim out by you uh, a different time of day, different time of year, <coughs> different conditions, and they prove, oh yeah, he could have run up 10 Mile Bayou and gotten to the Bojangles restaurant in plenty of time to be seen there from the woods. Big deal. For one thing, he didn't do that. Why would he do that? He could just walk, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You just, there's a service road right there. Walk up there and go down that. People are walking on that, not all the time, but often enough. Uh, you can certainly, you can walk somewhat, the terrain allows you to walk some distance away from the service road, or did. I don't know what is there right now, because I haven't been there in a bit, but uh, you know, you, it's it's it lends itself to not being noticed. Let's put it that way. And you could walk you could walk that distance uh, down that service road. He could have walked to the neighborhood, muddy and bloody, might have gotten noticed. But he certainly could have walked down the service road if that's what he wanted to do. More likely, he was hanging around in the woods uh, where Tracy Laxton was behind. Uh, the Bojangles restaurant off Missouri came out to use the bathroom. Come in, he's bleed. He cut himself or something. He's bleeding a little bit. He smears his own poop and blood around the restroom and ladies' restroom and leaves. It's not somebody who's looking to be. Is I will give Ruff this. He writes. He simply writes off Mr. Bojangles and good. Maybe that'll get people off that particular alternative suspect because it never made a lot of sense. Um, trying to, oh, uh, rough, trying to chase, he spends a lot of time chasing down Jesse Miskelly Jr. I don't think Jesse's really that hard to find if you really want to find him. He doesn't, my understanding is, and I think it's true, he doesn't go much of anywhere. If you, once you, there are people, there are, there are ways as, it's pretty clear from the thing. He acts as if he's impossible to get a hold of. He's not. People, There are people there who 
know where he lives and who spend time hanging out with him. And all you have to do is get in touch with those people. And if they're on a friendly basis, they're going to at least sort of steer you his way. You know, let you know where he is. And all you got to do is just catch him. Ruff doesn't have the patience or the skills for doing that. He's not much of an investigator. Um, so that was all pretty ridiculous. All this blown up outrage over Ellington not calling him back. Well, Ellington don't want to talk to him. He has no business with him. He, he, Ellington's got other things on his mind. Yeah, do I think Ellington should have called him back and said, look, we're not doing that? Yeah, probably. But, you know, the truth is, all he would do is just open up another can of worms. Why bother? Just let him come after me. Hopefully he'll go away. I'm sure that's Ellington's attitude. And the truth is, is that's probably what's going to happen eventually. This is all going to come out to a big nothing. Except poor... Terry Hobbs is going to be lambasted, treated like a pariah, attacked relentlessly. Uh, hopefully, it's all verbal and he doesn't have any real consequences. But this is dangerous stuff that Ruff is messing with. There are people who will take this very, could take this very seriously and do actual harm to various persons. And I, I am very concerned about that. Uh, he should be concerned about that, but he's not. He doesn't care. He doesn't really care about anything except Bob Ruff and getting a bigger, better man shed and, you know, the back of wherever he's moved, moved to and getting a bigger studio and getting his fat little face put on Oxygen Network. Enjoy your... Enjoy your time on Oxygen Network this time, Bob. I don't think they're going to be inviting you back. It was a clown show. And I know I missed some things. There was some other stuff that was just... Oh, he goes in and talks to these experts. And I'm not saying that they don't know what they're talking about, because they do, but, they're you know, you're asking somebody to evaluate an autopsy, and you're based, basing it on, like, two or three selective photos and they're supposed to determine the cause of death, and when you, they tell you something like, oh, yeah, um, well, or not the, the cause of the wound, yeah, here's two or three photos that look like they might be turtle bites. Uh, yeah, oh, that, that might be turtle bites, yeah, that could be. Then uh, Ruff jumps, oh, well, you know, it's turtle bites, so we know that turtle bites, that these boys weren't stabbed, that... Uh, that all these wounds were turtle bites. 99% of them, I think, what do you say, 90 or 99% uh, of the wounds were uh, caused by animal predation. And that's Bob Bruff's opinion. It's not the opinion even of the experts he's talking to. And they're very, they've shown very selective evidence to begin with. We talked to a turtle expert who talks about, about, uh, the wounds at turtle and we do this thing with the turtle biting the food and it looks really scary but uh you know i don't want i don't want to put my foot in the water with a snapping turtle either thank you but the point being is, is you know it's it's mostly for show uh they're scary looking animals uh but there's no evidence that one of those big turtles was up in the uh creek at the time, There's, there was no sign of turtles in that creek, that, that uh, little ditch. 
uh, Bob Ruff is really comparing apples and oranges to use the cliche, which I don't like, but there it is. Uh, comparing uh, daytime, uh, and I'm not sure what time of year he was doing the, the, the business with uh, dropping the chickens into the water, but uh, daytime, presumably warm weather, uh, Tim Mount Bayou with nighttime small drainage creek, you know. And let me qualify this a little bit in that it's possible that maybe even likely that there was some some sort of small animal predation and some of those wounds that doesn't seem that unlikely to me but it doesn't mean that they didn't have an opening to begin with in other words stab me in the face throw me in the water where are you know where are the the turtles going to feed? They're going to feed at my where I'm stabbed. And if there's any kind of animal predation going on, it doesn't mean that they weren't also attacked with a knife. It doesn't rule that out. So all that's a bit of a you know on top of that <laughs> these boys were killed uh, Miskelly's confession was pretty consistent about the use of the knife he was very consistent his many confessions have been very consistent about the use of a knife many of the wounds are very consistent with the use of a knife <coughs> to suddenly decide on the basis of uh, a few uh, conversations with experts, a very selective survey of the evidence that, oh, well, no knives were used. It's just simply, it's, it's fallacious, it's misleading, it's dishonest, and it's downright stupid. I could watch, I, you know, got off on some stuff today, and I know there were other things I wanted to talk to about concerning this particular special, but, uh, and I didn't want to get down on the in the weeds on the Jacoby alibi, but I'll say once again, he offers an alibi to Hobbs, and I'll say again, Eccles does not have an alibi, neither does Baldwin or Miskelly, so if the rationale for the new investigation is, well, they couldn't have done it because they had this alibi, well, no, they didn't, so where's your rationale now, Bob Ruff? Well, it's there because you just simply can ignore the truth. Anyway, that's enough for me today. Thank you for listening.